You're listening to a resource from Alpine Bible Church. Alpine Bible Church exists to know Christ Jesus together and to make Him known. We are located in Sugar Creek, Ohio. For more information, visit our website at alpinebible.org. May Jesus be glorified in your life. the people of God. He has saved us and brought us together as a body in him. And uh, some have come and gone. Uh, We were going to celebrate others who have left. We had a family that uh, uh, did a video for us of just uh, their love for Alpine, what Alpine meant to them through their lives here. Uh, I'd like us to look at that right now and just uh, just remember who they are, Kim and Jim Damon and their kids. What a blessing you guys are. You were a blessing 20 years ago, a blessing for us 17 years ago, and a blessing today. No church do we have fonder memories of than Alpine. Even though our time was short, its impact will last forever. We are so sorry we won't be able to attend the uh, anniversary celebration. We would have loved to seen all of you to talk, a laugh about old times and probably shed a tear or two. We'd also love to see the church that you've grown into. We can only imagine how God has used Alpine over all these years. We know our family grew so much in our time there. Our family still applies and reminded today of what we learned through God's word and God's teaching and the life lessons that each of you shared with us. You all had such a lasting impression and were mentors and role models, whether you knew it or not. We observed firsthand great acts of service and were blessed because of it. Oh my gosh, well, who could could tell a story better than Brenda West? Or lead the children's worship with musical instruments? Like Barb and Pam, oh my gosh, or make you feel loved by her hugs like Mary Lou Bente. Or lead the women of the church with love and laughter like Marilyn Stewart. And serve in a minute's notice with a cup of coffee in her hand like Tanya Haynes. But show the greatest hospitality and love like Gladen Levina Hartzler did. Mm. Yeah. You know, and as a guy, I had so many men that challenged me and that I just wanted to try to be, to be like, to grow into, like, you know, to be as funny as Larry Bente or, or, or to have that grin, that, that, that smile like, like Brian Haynes, um, or the contagious laugh of Jack Stahl, um, You know, there was so much. There was, you know, to be able to sing and to play guitar and to have memorized the Bible in both Greek and Hebrew, well, that'd be Bob West. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as a guy, who doesn't want to talk like Fred Hartzler? You know, it would be such a treat 
to be in another alpine service, but not on a folding chair. Yeah. It would be it would be great to 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 see what they've grown from the seed that we experienced. And it would be great to take a snapshot of today and look at it in another 20 years. It is awesome to see God at work and to also to be his hands and feet. Yeah. Well, we have so many great memories were made in what feels like such a short time with y'all. Bible studies, youth events, missions trips, small groups, and the Sunday services, just to name a few. You were so much more than a congregation to us, more than just friends. You were our family. But just as God had directed the Israelites in Numbers 9 to stay camped as he commanded, and then to travel as he commanded, we are thankful for the time we were camped with you. You know, we miss the sweet fellowship of Alpine. Yeah, you guys have no idea. It was it was so great doing doing life with you. Yeah, you're all such a part of our lives, and that but the memories will last a lifetime. Sometimes some things, but in life never change. Right, like Pastor Byron's hair. Yeah, you know, same yesterday, today, and forever. That's right, but also our love for Alpine. Mm-hmm. May God continue to bless Alpine Bible Church. And each of you are dear friends. Happy, Happy anniversary. anniversary. We love you guys. He was always jealous. <laughs> yeah, I missed the anniversary too. How was it? <laughs> I heard it was pretty good. I don't have much of a voice, forgive me for that, but I'm going to do my best to walk us through a text this morning. I wanted to address this issue that as I sat in a bed for uh, four weeks, kind of, and just processed uh, many things, I had my mind on this for a long time, that we are the people of God. And what that means to me and to you, hopefully, today, I know we did a pledge this morning Pledge of Allegiance, and I have to confess that sometimes in my cynical view of life, I can, uh, I can have a, a very critical attitude about that. So I wrote this down while I was laying in bed. I pledge allegiance to the flag, that is what the flag used to stand for, uh, of the United States of America, though we're hardly united in any pure, righteous way. And to the republic for which it stands, though it seems that people are less inclined to exercise their right to vote and even less inclined to respect the majority who win any vote. One nation under God? Well, we used to be. Now God is the exclusion. Indivisible? California wants to secede. With liberty and justice for all, subject to opinion polls, and the whim of litigating opportunities. We've all watched this constant deterioration of morals and ethics, along with these legal wars going on about religion and Christianity and so on, and some we've won, some we lose. 
But I'm reminded, I don't know about you, but I'm reminded from all of these things going on around me that we do not truly belong here. This is not our home. And as much as I want to claim America as my land of the free and home of the brave, I am a people of a different land. And we're on a journey together to that wonderful and glorious place called heaven. And I hope that we have a longing in our hearts to be at home. I uh, came back from the dead, so they say. I uh, have mixed emotions about that. I'm glad I'm here. I figure there must be a reason. I don't know what it is. But I was only a breath away from glory. And as I contemplate that, I come back not with some different message. I just come back stronger in my heart about who I am, who I belong to, and what I believe. So in this text... I want to cover three areas that he lays out for us from verse 4 on to verse 17. As this was read by Nick, it says, Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. We are attached to the Lord God. We are attached to him. He says, and obviously I'm attached to him. Uh, it goes on and says in verse 2, you also as living stones are being built. So he's drawing us to himself. And as he is a living stone, we are living stones that come to him. He is the cornerstone of my faith and my life. Now, that word cornerstone is uh, today probably very much not appreciated because most of our buildings today don't have cornerstones. Most of our buildings are prefab, pre-designed, uh, often come uh, as kits put together, and even this church was put together as a kit. There is no cornerstone at Alpine. Uh, but obviously, uh, uh, I was at a church, my uh, son-in-law's church. We, uh, I was with a team that uh, planted that church years ago, and uh, they still have a cornerstone. It was made of brick, and we have a cornerstone with the date uh, that it was founded. My son-in-law is now the pastor of that church, which is exciting, but just to look at that cornerstone and remind myself of that early day when we built that church. And a reminder that's who we are. We're this attachment to a cornerstone that is the solid rock of Jesus Christ. He says in this text, he's rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. And so there's this uh, reminder that the word rejected means having no value. You can imagine that Jesus Christ is, is rejected by men. He has no, no value, no, uh, no worth. Uh, no, there's nothing about him that interests people in general. And, that, and the sad thing is that when you uh, do the comparison here, uh, he is uh, obviously, even today, it seems as though there's just no sense of value in God. God is, is a worthless Commodity, God is something that some people believe in that isn't even believable. And so he's cast aside. Yet in the contrast of the text, he's precious to God. So the value to God is that he is of the highest value, but to man he is of the lowest value. 
And sad to say, by the way, this will become the basis for judgment. When men stand before God, the issue is going to be of what value did you place on Jesus Christ? I am uh, maybe even more uh, committed and more concerned uh, as we go through life of those Christians who profess Christ who themselves will be guilty oftentimes of holding Christ at a lower value. He's to be the highest value of anything in my life. Nothing should come before him, and yet we oftentimes struggle with other things that become more important to us. As living stones, then, we come to him. And in the text, I want to sort of draw this out, that we come to him, and it's in coming to him that we're going to discover our perfect purpose as we are fitted or attached to him and conformed then to his person. That, that's what happens when he says coming to him as a living stone. These who are now stones, you and I, we come to him and we attach ourselves willingly to him and we allow him then to perfect us and change us and adjust us to himself. And that then allows us to figure out who we actually are and why he designed us. And the perfect plan of God is only discovered as we give ourselves to him and yield ourselves to him and let him then shape us into what he wants us to be. A stone. A living stone. Interesting that uh, that is what's used to remind us of who we are. There's three things I want to say about this attachment to him. The first thing is this. We, uh, we must be made as living stones. That, that's the first thing that has to happen. Uh, I uh, think about a rock. You pick up a rock, you throw it. You pick up a rock and you uh, smash something else with it. You, uh, you move large rocks to, uh, get, to get out of the way because they're worthless to build upon. They're not level and so on. Rocks are rocks, you know, and uh, whether they're large, small, they're just what they are, they're rocks, they're lifeless, they are just there. It's amazing that uh, when you think about it, that Jesus, when he was riding into Jerusalem, said that if you don't worship me, the rocks will cry out. That would mean that he would have to give life to the rocks. What's interesting is that you and I, Outside of Christ, so before I knew Christ, before I ever asked Christ into my life, try to hold on to this, that you and I at that stage of our life were rocks, meaning we were dead. We were lifeless. There was nothing about us that had any sense of life or really even value. Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verse 1 says, and, he, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. He had to make us alive before we could ever attach ourselves to him. He did that by revealing himself to us and we recognized him. We came to life as his spirit moved into us and gave us life and brought us from death to life. And then we realize who the one was who gave us life, and we then come to him, and we willingly attach ourselves to him. But we have to have his life in us, first of all. Second thing is this, we must understand our new position and place. 
We are not alone, but we're joined with Christ and with others. And so he says here in verse 5, You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house and a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are not alone, but we're joined with Christ and others, and he's building us up as into a spiritual house. I've always liked this analogy. Now, he's writing to exiles. You go back to chapter 1, verse 2. He's writing to exiles, those who had, had to flee from, uh, in, during a dispersion from uh, the land of Israel to all kinds of places. So he lists them in verse 1, uh, to Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. He calls them elect according to the foreknowledge of God there. But these are pilgrims or exiles. These are people who had to flee. They, they uh, had hardly any time to collect anything that was theirs. They just had to run with their families and flee. And now they're scattered in all kinds of places. And so here's Peter sending this letter out, which had to have been copied multiple times and sent out to all these scattered people. They weren't yet the organized church. They were just scattered exiles, many of them alone. They may have had faith in Christ, but they had no chance to grow in that faith, to understand all the ramifications of that faith. They just had to run. And here's, here's Peter reminding them that what you have now in your life no longer has any connection to a temple back in Jerusalem. That's gone. Matter of fact, that's been done away with by God through Jesus Christ. You don't need that anymore. You're not missing anything. Uh, it's not about a church. There are some churches to their shame who will teach and preach that they are the only, the only proper place where you can meet God. What a terrible lie to tell people. This building is nothing, but it's wonderful, but it's nothing. We can knock this down today. It wouldn't change who we are, I hope. If you're only here because of a building, I feel sorry for you because it's not that impressive. <clears throat> but I'm glad we have it. We need it to meet, I think. He's building up a spiritual house. That's the idea that he's, first of all, as we know from 1 Corinthians 6, he's dwelling in individual lives. So when you gave your life to Christ, the Spirit lives in you. You're the temple of God. And so the Spirit's dwelling in you, which is wonderful. But when he draws us together as the body of Christ, this collective body before his presence, he dwells with us and among us as we meet together in his name. So when we say he's here, he is here. The Lord Jesus designed this. You just got to catch the tone this morning. We are his people and he has designed that we would meet together as he's building up this this uh, spiritual house, it goes on to say not only that uh, as, as a spiritual house, but he's also building up a holy priesthood. Uh, only the priests, of course, had any direct access to the presence of God. And here now, in this day, you and I, since Christ, you and I are now priests. I don't think you think of yourself as one. And he adds this word holy. You are a holy priesthood. I don't know that we take this serious. 
I uh, asked, I forget who it was, I was in a conversation with somebody. Well, maybe I do remember now. (laughs) I just remembered. I was in a conversation, and I just said, as the priest of your home, as the priest of your family, and I was asking a question about that, and I was just reminded that, men, God has called you to be the priest of your home. Ladies, God has called you to be the priestess of your home through Christ. He's building up a holy priesthood. It's it's more than just I'm a part of the flock that attends Alpine and I sit in a chair, I listen, I process, I sing, I participate where I can. It's so much more than that. You are a holy priest before God, invited into his presence. You can come into his presence. You know who hates this idea? Catholic priests, Episcopal priests, Orthodox priests, who think they're the only ones who can go to God on your behalf. How sad they don't realize we don't need to go to a priest to confess our sins. We go directly to God. Hebrews 10 tells us very clearly that we can come with boldness into his throne before him because of Christ. He's building up a spiritual house and he's building up a holy priesthood. These exiles are hearing this. You can imagine as they're thinking about themselves, the fact that they gave their faith to Christ, but now they're on the run. They have no home. They have no place. They have no temple. They have, they've been disconnected from all that was familiar to them in their past. And here's Peter sending a letter out to find these people, and he, uh, it catches up with them, and he wants them to know through what Christ has done for them, through his blood and through his power, through their faith in him, their genuine faith in him. He's, he's reminding them now that you're coming to Christ. He's conforming you, and you're a living stone. You're attaching yourself to him, and as you do that, he's building you up into this new uh, place in, in him and this new position. But there must also be, the third thing is this, we must be willing then to follow and to become like our Lord. We must be willing to do that. It's the Spirit of God who uh, does this work in us. It's the Spirit of God that is supposed to and does oftentimes, makes us humble. I, I, I can't make myself humble. I have tried. I cannot make myself humble. There isn't an exercise I've found that will make me more humble. I'm an arrogant fellow. I am. I, in my early days, would measure myself to everyone else. If I was playing ball against somebody, I would tell them I was better than them, and I would beat the snot out of them if I could. I had a guy uh, who was, uh, uh, we, were, we were friends in school, kind of. Kiki Sitar was his name. He thought he was something else. So I went to the Park League. Park League had a boxing league. I got into that boxing league, and Kiki and I had a match together. I said, I'm going to take your head off, Kiki Sitar. (laughs) I think he bopped me a few times, but... uh, there's just an arrogance that I don't know where that comes from. It's, it's fleshly, it's ugly, it, it rears up in all kinds of situations, and you realize that I'm always fighting that all through my life. Still am. When the nurse came in and told me that she was going to take my clothes off and give me a bath, I said, no, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm in charge of my life, not you. I can give myself a bath, thank you very much. Don't like being told what to do. There has to be a willingness in our hearts. There has to be a recognition of who he is, and I have attached myself to him. Then I must willingly, constantly want to be shaped and changed and adjusted. I've never arrived yet. I'm still wanting to be shaped and changed. I'm still not perfected. I don't think I will be till I get to glory. So, Lord, keep affecting me. Keep changing me. Keep adjusting me. Keep saving me from myself, from this flesh. We must be willing. The spirit that's within us enables us to do this, to become pliable and willing. And so he says here in verse 7, Therefore, to you who believe he is precious, if you believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. There's a context here, which we'll get to. And and in the context, I do want to say this. It's interesting that uh, obviously if you believe in him today, then you should be declaring that he's precious. If you believe in Christ, he should be precious to you. And I guess the rhetorical question is, is he precious to you? Because I, I don't know. But we have, to, we have to answer that. But notice he doesn't qual- how he qualifies this. He's, he's talking to unsaved people and saved people. So when he says, but to those who are, instead of saying unsaved, or, or dis- he says to those who are disobedient. He doesn't say to those who are disbelieving. To those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. In this context, disobedience is tied to disbelief or rejection. What I think is interesting about that is that you and I need to know if you're a dead dead stone today, if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, what is true about this text is that he has created all of us. And in a sense then, he then owns all of us, even if we refuse to believe in him. In the the text, he goes on and says that, uh, uh, and it's kind of a sobering text, In verse 8, he says, after he says, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, they stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. He's talking about the nation of Israel here. He's talking about all those who have rejected him. You know, God worked in Israel to make them his showcase nation to the world. That was the intent. So that Israel was supposed to uh, uh, present to the world the presence of God dwelling in them. They were to model to the world his power on display through them. And they were to model to the world his glory manifested from within them. But they rejected the rock, the stone, Christ. They rejected him. They were basically designed and assigned. They were appointed to be that, and they completely said, he's worthless. We reject him. And so now in the text, he's basically telling us that, and and this is something that I think is so interesting when I think about this text, just the idea that in verse 8, again, that being disobedient, they stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. Unsaved people, 
have to deal with the fact, and I go back to Romans 1.19, you know the text. Maybe you don't, I'll read it to you then, Romans 1.19. I think you should know this because talking about uh, those who suppress the truth, and he says, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. There's this understanding that those who don't follow Christ, those who reject Christ, those who are not interested in Christ, are, are those who then obviously uh, are being held accountable by him because there is this innate revelation of Christ in their very lives to which they have no excuse to say, I did not know you or I didn't know about you. In either case, he's identifying that those who do not want him, do not care about him, do not choose him, do not follow him, they still belong to him. They still belong to him. So he says, you're disobedient. The judgment will be, you've been disobedient to me. And they're going to say, oh, I didn't even know you. No, that doesn't make any difference. You did know. You had enough information to know who I was. Amazing. Uh, and so you and I as Christians, can you imagine you and I as Christians then? I, my point is this, that if unsaved people are rejecting Christ and not following him, and yet he's saying they are disobedient, what about the believer in Christ who's not following, who's not obeying? who's not yielding, who's holding back, who's restraining from giving their entire life to him, who's afraid to serve Jesus because it might mean a deeper commitment than I want to give. All those reasons that we throw out. Can you imagine that if he says those who reject me are disobedient, what is he saying to those who know him and are not following him in obedience? We must be willing this attachment means I must be willing to become like him. second major point here is in verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are the property of God. We are the property of God. We're, first of all, he says we're a chosen generation, and uh, I've always liked this. It's always been one of those trip-up words that we struggle with. What does it mean to be chosen? And, and you know, how can all that all take place? I, I don't have that figured out. I'm just, I was thinking about this while I was laying in bed after I thought I was going to die and go to heaven, uh, and I'm alive again. I'm, I'm processing this whole thing about being chosen. And uh, I'm reminded from Ephesians 1, verse 4, that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. He chose me. Every generation since Christ has been chosen. I could even go say, I could even say before that, but I'm just concerned about New Testament thinking. Every person uh, since Christ has been chosen. You can't change that or escape that or figure that out. I just want to say, I am so glad to, that I was chosen to be his child. And as I laid there in a bed thinking about life and death and all that kind of stuff, I'm realizing I don't have to fear anything. I've been chosen by him. 
He says, I'm a royal priesthood. Now, the first he said was a holy priesthood. Now he's saying, I'm a royal priesthood. Again, these exiles hearing this are processing something new, gloriously new. We know that Christ Jesus was the only one who was both uh, royalty and a priest. Uh, he was, uh, we, we read about him in, in Hebrews that he was a priest after the form of Melchizedek. That's Hebrews chapter 8. We know that uh, that indicates that there was no sense of beginning or ending. We don't know uh, the roots of Melchizedek. It's a, it's a picture of Christ coming uh, eternal in his character and nature, but a priest who is eternally always a priest, uh, holy and obviously the one that we go to, but also the sense of royalty that as Jesus was the son of David coming through royalty, you and I, Romans chapter 8, are now belonging to him as sons and daughters, and we have all the royalty of the royal one himself. I have all of that as an inheritance in my life. I'm a royal priest. (laughs) It's an amazing thing. The world can say you're worthless, your Christianity is dumb, you're, you guys uh, have nothing, your, your sacrifices to be Christians are, are worthless things, but we are living as royal priests for a God who's living and true. And we realize that as those royal priests, we have this wonderful opportunity to go to him. The veil has been torn in two. We go directly to Jesus Christ. It is a wonderful thing, and he sees us not just as, okay, new priest coming in to see me. No, we are his. We are a part of him. We are in his own blood. We are now his family. We are now his sons and daughters, and we are royal before him in that sense. I don't even know how to define that any better. He says, we're a holy nation. Here's what really struck me. We're a holy nation. You can say what you want about America. I love America. I love what, it's, what we have always stood for. I, I served my country. Uh, I, I have all that in my background. But I am going to tell you that nothing is more near or dear to my heart and my loyalties than the local church of Jesus Christ, his body. That's why I love being here. And when I'm away, when I was gone, it was like a huge vacuum in my life. I realized for the first time, I've never, had, I've never been near as I will be, as sensitive as I probably will be now to those who are shut-ins, who can't go to church, who become disconnected. People forget who you are when you're gone after a while. It's a sad thing to visit nursing homes and realize that some believers are never visited by their family or by their church. There's this divine connection that we have. And it's, it's a wonderful thing. We're a holy nation. We're, we're called into this sense of who we are. We're no longer outsiders. That's, these folks who were on the journey who had, who had been chased out of their homes, they were, in a sense, feeling outsiders. They had been disconnected from, from perhaps family and from, certainly from uh, the communities that they were in. And they're, they're completely on their own, running to different places. And as Peter writes this to them, 
He's reconnecting them. He's saying, you're not alone. You're not by yourself out there. You are a part of something greater than you understand. You are a part of a holy nation, and that nation is God's nation. And then he adds this wonderful next superlative here when he says, uh, you're not only a nation, you're God's special people, his own special people, it says. And I love what it, how it reads here, uh, people who once were not a people. You are not a people. That's kind of like saying you were a stone without life. You were not a people. You were not connected. Can I pause for a second? Because I know that there are some who, even today, may be sitting here and you still feel as though you're not connected. It's easy, it's easy to have church and come in and sit down and Maybe for some odd reason no one greets you or you feel as though no one's greeted you or no one has seen you, no one recognizes you, no one cares about you. We've had a couple of people in our journey here, a couple, accuse us of not being friendly. Most people have told us how friendly we are because we try to be on cue about that, but sometimes you just miss people. As I was in the foyer shaking hands this morning, because I, I normally never used to do that, I was able to shake hands with lots of you, and I probably missed somebody, and maybe somebody thought, well, he's not even a very friendly pastor. I mean, he's been gone, he didn't shake my hand. Or he gave a hug to that person, but he didn't hug me. I don't hug, I just hug if somebody makes me. <laughs> you already know that. So you didn't miss a thing. A holy nation, his own special people, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. God, thank you for that. The third thing I want to say this morning is in verse 11. We live in honor of his glory as a result of all of this. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners, reminding them of who they are, and pilgrims. Uh, And by the way, as he reminds them, that's very important. I I don't want to slight this, because he's, he's addressing them as who they are, who they think they are, who they are. They're sojourners, they're pilgrims, they're travelers, and he's reminding them, and I want to say to us today, don't forget that's who you are. This is not a a sad reminder of, oh, you poor people, you're sojourners and pilgrims. Oh, woe is you. He's reminding them that don't you dare forget this. This is who we are supposed to be. You know, uh, you buy a home, you plant your roots down, you plant your gardens, and you kind of get settled in, and you just want to permanize your life and you want to live in this utopia with your beautiful view of your yard and grow all these wonderful plants and just live in this garden of Eden in your life and everything has to be perfect and we all like these little houses like that. I don't know if you watch uh, some of the some of the home improvement shows on, on the home and garden and stuff but they, they try to do that, this perfect little environment that you'll be happy in for the rest of your life and we know that that's just simply not true. And we also know that you, you have to mow your lawn, you have to trim, the, pull the weeds, you have to constantly work to keep it looking good, and you've got to stay on top of it. And, you know, uh, by the way, let me just pause for a second. I want to thank the guys who have come and mowed my lawn. 
uh, while I've been down. Thank you from the bottom of my heart because I'm not allowed to do that. I think the days are short. I th- I'm see the doctor tomorrow. I'm going to tell him, look, set me free. Let me do my life. So uh, I'm going to try and cut that short. But I want to thank you for doing that. It has meant so much to Marilyn and I to have that happen. My neighbor came over yesterday and said, wow. He says, you've had a lot of traffic at your house since you've been homesick. I said, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, we have... Our church is a wonderful church. People stop by and visit and uh, so on. And I got some guys working. And he says, yeah, they've been cutting your lawn. I said, yeah, they, they've been doing that. It's wonderful. And he just said, that, that's a testimony to your church. And he did, they go to a different church. He said, that's a testimony to your church. He, I know some of the people in your church, and they all seem to be just really servants. And I said, yes, they are. It's a wonderful place to be. Why don't you come to our church? And uh, <laughs> just throw that in, you know. Well, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Back up. <laughs> so, because of what he's saying here, because of who you are, don't forget who you are, sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. The warning goes out that there's this internal conflict that comes up when we allow ourselves to slip back into things of the flesh that become this huge battle because now with your life given to Christ and you want to attach yourself to him and be conformed to his image and, and you realize that you want to just you know obviously live for him and so on, if you drift back into these things, it causes this enormous battle in your soul that rages. I've always said that people who come and tell me that I'm struggling with whether I'm really saved or not. When I hear people say that, the bells go off in my mind that they're living in a fleshly way in some part of their life. Because if you struggle with whether you're a believer or not, if that's your struggle, then I have to say you're living your life in your own flesh. You're not following and trusting Christ. Something's amiss about your faith. And that's very serious. So he says, obviously, that that's an issue. Be very careful. Don't get involved back in fleshly things. Abstain from them. If I'm going to give honor and glory to Jesus Christ and living for him, then I must deal with this. I think a worse problem than just having a conflict in my soul is the feeling of disconnect that happens when I feel as though I'm no longer receiving approval by the, from the Savior of my life. If I slip back into this fleshly kind of thing with living in the, in the flesh and then trying to be a Christian on Sundays and kind of bouncing back and forth, no wonder we struggle in our faith and no wonder we feel as though probably I'm not pleasing Christ in some area of my life. And I want to challenge you today. If you, if you can look in your heart today and say, I, I, I'm not positive that he's pleased with my life right now, then I, from my heart, plead with you to evaluate your life and look for those places where you have not placed him first. Confess them. We need to abstain from fleshly lusts if I'm going to honor him. Second thing he says is, uh, I've said it my way, but in verse 12, he says, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Uh, I, I believe that our good works must be observable. You know what happens is uh, we have uh, our idea of good works. We, we have all kinds of things we can do as good works. And many times we're serving in the church. We're 
maybe doing something else uh, in the community that gives the impression of that. But what happens is oftentimes is that uh, a lot of people don't see our good works. We do them in the church. We do them in our Christian homes. Very few of us sometimes get involved in community things where our good works are more observable. Today, more than ever, Christians need to not go into their shelters, but they need to be standing for Christ in public. Well, here's the thing. Notice what he says here. He tells us that we need to have our conduct honorable among the Gentiles, but notice what he says, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God on the day of visitation. I've always been intrigued by this verse. Do you know that people who are not followers of God, people who see that God has no value, they may see you as pushing your agenda, trying to exercise your righteousness, and they tag you as overzealous and uh, trying to do good when everyone else is just being normal, uh, pushing the issue, making them look bad, you're going to get some of, those, some of that kickback from people if you're trying to do good works in public. Uh, you're going to find that people are going to reject you on the basis of when they find out you're a Christian while you're doing good works. And they're going to hold you hostage to all of that and have nothing good to say about you usually. But what's interesting to me is that according to this verse, it doesn't mean they don't see your good works. It doesn't mean that they give assent to your good works because they do. And what's amazing to me is that he says here that one day, one day, and he uses this uh, little phrase, in the day of visitation. A day is coming when we will stand before the Lord God. This person who has been cruel in their comments about you and I, is going to stand before God and they're going to actually confess your goodness. They're going to confess your righteousness. They're going to be calling out to God, hoping perhaps to get some grace from God in judgment by telling all the good things about you when they had said horrible things about you in your life. There's going to be a report, and the whole point is that, I think, of what Peter is saying is that you and I need to stay faithful in honoring God all the way through the end of our life so that that day will come when someone who calls you out and is your enemy seemingly in this life will one day stand before God and praise your good works that they did see. But here's the problem, is when people watch us and observe us and realize that we profess to be churchgoers and we are not doing good works. And we are not giving honor and glory to God in how we live. There's a trial that takes place and the enemies of God are always looking for those who profess God and are hypocrites. And they're kinder to them than they are to those of us who stand faithful. We need to realize that we need to be faithful to the end. And one day the reward will simply be hearing from their lips their confession of how good we were. 
That sounds so wonderful to me. Lord, help me to be that kind of person. Therefore, he says, therefore, verse 13, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. In other words, be habitually obedient, I think is what it's saying, to every authority over your life. Verse 15 says, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. One last thing I want to touch on, he says, as free. He goes on to say, as free. Verse 16. Yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bond servants of God. <laughs> I find this always interesting. We are free in Christ. I'm so thankful for that, aren't you? I'm free in Christ. I, I'm not going to be held accountable. I'm, I'm, I'm free. I'm, not gonna, I'm righteous before God. I'm going to be uh, not judged by God because I've been set free through Jesus Christ and his shed blood for me and my faith in him. I'm free. And he says, don't use that liberty as a cloak for vice. Don't, don't you dare go back. And, and so, you know, obviously Paul talks about that more than anyone else. Romans 6, 1, Paul says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Verse 15, he says, shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. We don't do that. Oh, what's interesting, he says, as free, and then it's sort of like an oxymoron in a sense. He says, as free, but as bondservants. I'm free because of Christ, but I willingly make myself a bondservant. I've gone from freedom, being set free from God, being set free from the curse of sin, being set free to, to live a life without any weight of guilt on my conscience before God, only to make myself a bondservant of God. And here's the thing. So many Christians have missed this. While I was uh, laying there again and thinking about this, I was relinquishing myself to the Lord. I was saying to myself, Lord, I, I don't know what's going on. I don't know why this has happened. I don't know why I'm facing this. I don't know why you spared me four times from a stopped heart to keep me alive to now I'm going into surgery and I'm so I'm processing all of that and as I'm processing that even as I was being wheeled down the hall to go into surgery I was saying under the breath of my life I'm your bond servant doesn't make any difference what happens to me today doesn't make any difference if I don't go through that come through this it, it really doesn't I I'm yours you've already proven that to me I'm yours so have at it the, the grace movement that's out there today is so prevalent in telling believers that they, they do not and cannot sin. And they want to say, well, we're, we're forgiven in Christ. We're viewed as holy uh, by God. And yet, here's Peter warning these believers. <clears throat> so we need to take this serious. I was driving down. There's a, <clears throat> on 39 past, if you go past... Uh, Berlin, heading toward Millersburg. Some fellow has a big sign. He just changed it last week, so it, it was my point. You have to have seen the sign before this week. <laughs> but he had to sign up for a long time that said, Real Christians obey the Lord God. Anybody ever seen that sign? You can't hardly miss it if you're going up 39. 
I've always wondered, who's that sign for? Who put that sign up? What's the motive behind that sign? Because the world doesn't care about that. So this person's talking about other Christians, right? Real Christians obey the Lord. I thought, my dear fellow, I wanted to say, yes, that's true. Except that real Christians also fail. Real Christians sometimes sin. Real Christians can disappoint Jesus. Real Christians can grieve the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible says. So, you know, that that irritates me that those kinds of signs don't know what the goal is, but I do want to remind us that, yes, our goal today is to live in honor of Jesus Christ for what he's done in our lives. But obviously we need to keep our eyes on him, and he's just warning us in this text, be careful, don't fall back. The summary of his text, I think, is in verse 17 for all of us this morning. Four things. He says, honor all people. You, the people of God, honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Let me pause. Let me pause and just remind us today, if you have something in your heart that troubles you about somebody else in our church, God help you to have the righteous understanding that it's your responsibility to go to that person in love and express the issue. To not do that is your sin. And if that person ends up leaving our church over an issue when you knew the issue and didn't try your best to solve it, puts that guilt on you. So we are called to love the brotherhood. Love brothers and sisters in Christ. I've always loved this because you have no choice but to love me. Don't you think it's wonderful? I do. I think it's great. Love the brotherhood. Then he uh, adds this fear God. Let's fear God. Let's, Let's recognize his awesomeness and not lose the sense of that. Honor the king, he says. Honor those in charge who are over you. Uh, certainly as we honor the King of kings and Lord of lords, we, we certainly do that. And he's telling us to do this. This is who we are as the people of God. This is who Alpine Bible Church needs to be in the future. Our loyalty and our allegiance and our commitment is to God and his word, to his church, to his body, and to him receiving all the glory and honor and praise. That's what we're all about. Amen? as the people of God. What a privilege we have to be who he has called us to be, to be together in this cause. And unashamedly, I would say to you today, as I got in trouble months ago, I will still say it and just let the trouble keep coming. Join our church. If you're here sitting in the chair and you're processing us and you've been here for a while, it's time to join us. And I lovingly would say to you, only so that you can serve him in a better way and affirm what you see in this place and join hands with us. If you don't want to do that, then I encourage you with all the love I can say this to find a church where you can do that. I'm not telling you to leave. I'm telling you to find your place and give it all to Jesus Christ for his glory. It's all for him, isn't it? 
Thank you, Jesus Christ, for your word. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you have allowed us as a church to be together for 20 years. There have been ups and downs, trials and tribulations, but there have been so many great blessings. Some have come, some have gone. Some have hurt us. Some we regret. But we realize again, Lord, that this work, as long as we turn it over to you, is your work. We're your people. We are your called ones. And you have placed us in a body called Alpine, and I praise you for your good work here. I ask, God, that you would help us in the days ahead to stay faithful, to stay focused on you, to not lose our grip on who you are and allow you to hold us with the strength of your right hand. Lord, I pray that you'll draw people to yourself, those who may in the past have rejected you or not even cared about you. May you awaken them as dead stones to become living stones today, calling on you and wanting to be a part of who you are. Thank you for saving many in our church, changing their lives and their marriages and their hope because of Jesus Christ. We give all the praise and all the glory and honor to the only one who deserves such from us. We lift up the name above all other names today, the name of Jesus Christ, in whom we pray. 